Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 35. My name is Edison Magalhães here at Iowa State University. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan here at Iowa State. Hello, Daniel Linhares at Iowa State. And today, as usual, we are going to cover the SDRS findings for the December 2020, going through PERS, enteric coronavirus, uh, mycoplasma, PCR detection, and in three separate sections. And lastly, we're going to cover disease diagnostic uh, for, from Iowa State University VDL. And furthermore, we have the pleasure today here to have as, as our special guest, Dr. Deb Murray. Dr. Deb Murray is a veterinary service manager at New Fashion Port based in Jackson, Minnesota. And she's a global expert in swine health and management in production. She received in 2012, 2012 the American Association of Swine Veterinarian, Young Swine Veterinarian of the Year uh, Award. And also received in 2016 the Lemon Swine, uh, Science in Practice uh, Award. And the SDRS project is glad, have, glad to have uh, the opportunity to work with Dr. Deb, Deb Murray as one of the advisory council members. And welcome. Thanks for, for accepting the invitation today and taking your time to join us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's get started. Just before we go through to the report, starting the, in the presentation, just an overall question for you, Dr. Dr. Murray. How has the SDRS programs uh, have helped veterinarians to make decisions on disease management and control? Can you give some examples of decisions that you typically uh, Take, make based on diagnostic results and at a regional level? Sure. Um, so it's, it's helpful just as an overall big picture to understand PERS prevalence, uh, the amount of PERS virus that's moving within, within the area, within the region, um, and just overall that helps to make decisions on vaccination, uh, how much pressure might be around those pigs, whether or not you choose to vaccinate um, in addition to PERS, of course, mycoplasma is another, another pathogen that if we know there's a lot of mycoplasma pressure, um, that might change our decisions on whether or not um, we choose to eradicate um, and then just how, how many other interventions we might need to be looking at um, just due to the other disease pressures that are out there um, and some of the other, you know, maybe not as, as um, prevalent bugs as PERS and mycoplasma, but still um, big players in health. And we are going to cover now the, the, the starting the PERS detection page. Uh, Giovanni, uh, this month report we're going to the, the PCR detection of, of PERS. What are the highlights from, from this month's report for the PERS detection page? Oh, PERS-wise detection did cross the upper boundaries for the forecast models for a couple of weeks between the end of October and the beginning of December. And at regional level, PERS-wise detection was above the baseline levels for the Midwest region. From our advisory group come the highlights that improvements were made for virus control during the last decade. And as a result of this progress, more susceptible animals are currently in placed in the fielding at growing sites. There was some recent virus breaks in cell farms that has contributed for placement of first positive animals in growing facilities. And on top of that, there is this association with cold weather that favors PERS virus survival and spread, potentially increasing the pressure of infection in the field. Additionally to that, there is some increased detection 
of Pulse Virus Strain RFLP144, and that has been associated with a large number of breaks in the Midwest region, more specifically Iowa and Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Murray, uh, so every year since at least 2009, we see this seasonal uh, pattern for, for, for birds starting late fall, early in winter. So what do you think in terms, let's say, the, the U.S. swine industry as a whole should do differently in the upcoming years uh, to really beat the odds in terms of, of purse control? What, what, what are you missing? Yeah, so I, I think we're still probably missing sort of the pie in the sky, but the ultimate PERS vaccination that would, you know, provide sterilizing immunity across multiple strains, um, that might be a long, long ways off, but that's, that, that would be ideal if we had a tool like that available. Um, today, we don't, you know, so our focus really has to go, I think, even more so today on biosecurity, maybe than what it even has in the past. I think PD really opened eyes of a lot um, to understand that maybe our biosecurity wasn't quite as good as it needed to be. And I think it improved a lot. But I think now since PD has been around a while, um, maybe it's sort of slipping a little. And that could be um, where, you know, some of the PERS spread you're seeing now is, is maybe we've kind of gone back to maybe older ways and not quite as tight on biosecurity as we could be. Um, I think another part of that is just the virulence of the virus. So it seems like we're finding strains that are surviving longer. They, of course, then they're spread more easily. Um, strains that tend to mutate rapidly. So they, you create a lot longer PERS viremia in the sow farm because the strain keeps changing. So essentially the animals are seeing a new virus and a new virus because it just keeps changing a little bit. So the longer that sow farm is positive, of course, then the longer the positive pigs leave that farm and then enter in, into the population. Um, so I think, you know, you have multiple factors contributing to that. So I think at this point, if we don't have good and then continue to improve biosecurity to keep those out, um, it's going to be really, really difficult to sort of turn the corner and, and start to reduce some of that PERS that we see, um, that we typically see every fall. So one follow-up question on that on biosecurity. When we say biosecurity, do you see opportunities to further improve breed-to-win uh, herd biosecurity? Or, or is, that, is that already good enough and should start focusing on biosecurity or grow finish animals or, or perhaps both? What, what's your... Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely could improve. Um, and there's still a lot of sites that would use rendering as a primary uh, method for uh, mortality disposal. And we know, looked at, looking at risk factor analysis, that rendering is, is very high in the list. Um, even looking at high path avian influenza, that was one of the number one risk factors to move that, you know, to getting a site infected. And looking at all of the, you know, grow finish um, you know, sites that have uh, rendering, that could definitely could be something down the road if we could move towards composting or something like that. Even things like that would help, I believe, to improve, you know, wean to finish um, biosecurity. And then on the sow farm end, um, I think we're still learning more on filtration. And I think a lot of farms, you know, have improved with filters, but we've kind of learned that some of the, the filters in the past maybe weren't, didn't last as long as we thought they did. Uh, so I think there's still more improvements still yet to come, um, even on, on filtering and, and some of the other methods of biosecurity for the sow farms. Just a quick comment. Uh, in terms of the of 
farms today breeding herds taking more time to achieve stability and probably some 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 sort of in influence from populational samples processing fluids that we are detecting very low prevalence. What do you see as the main contributors of this cha change on, on time, increasing time in need to, to achieve stability in breeding herds? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the number one um, factor is the viral mutation. You know, so viruses that mutate very rapidly and even within the first, you know, maybe week or two of the break, going in and sampling pigs and maybe you sample four different pigs and you find four essentially different viruses that might be just slightly different. So maybe point to, you know, different than each other. Um, but that that isn't normal. You know, in the past, we would have gone in and bled four pigs and they would have typically been 100% matched. And now now it's about a 50-50 where half the time you'll go in and, and it won't change. And then the other half of the time, and that again is even early in the break, it's already mutating very rapidly. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest factor, the biggest predictor on how long that it's going to take to stabilize that herd is if the virus is mutating rapidly and you can detect that right away. Um, that's your clue that it's going to be, you're going to be in for the long haul if you want to eliminate that virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Just a last question regarding PERS before we go to, to enter coronavirus. Uh, so data from the, uh, the ISU and the, the University of Minnesota VDLs showed an increased detection of PERS strain classified as the RFLP-144, especially in Minnesota and Iowa. What's your experience with these RFLP? And have you noticed something different or as compared to other strains? Uh, we haven't, haven't seen a lot on the 144, um, but we definitely have seen uh, more virulent viruses just in general. And uh, we've seen some 143 viruses, 174, 184. Um, the trick is, is that you can have two 174s that might be 10% different, right? So I think we're still sort of maybe lacking the ability to really pinpoint um, that we're talking maybe about the same virus. Um, and so that, that cut pattern, again, is that's what we have. But I, I think we maybe need a little bit better tool to understand exactly which particular strains we're referring to. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So moving on to the next page, which is the, the enteric coronavirus page, which covers the PCR detection for, for PD, uh, Delta coronavirus, and, T, uh, and TGE. Giovanni, what are the highlights from, from this month's report? Interhistorical, the PD detection starts to increase at around October, and that goes up for the colder months of the year. And during 2020, this curve has changed for a lower detection of PD from October to December when compared with previous year. We did inquire our advisory group about these uh, changes. And as a feedback, they answer us that a lot has been made and continues to be done for PD control. Example of actions that was implemented in the field include the intense efforts with testing and monitoring of to better characterize the health status of our herds within a production systems, improvements on biosecurity and biocontainment practices, sow farm depopulations, reduction in the number of sows farms that were unstable for PD, and improvements on truck wash capabilities and validated usage of feed mitigants as a per, uh, PD control. As you can see, there was a lot of things that was done and not only one to control PD in the last year. Yeah, and uh, a follow-up question for you, Dr. Murray, on that. 
since the enteric coronavirus introduction, we learned a lot from that, like you said before, uh, regarding, for example, biosecurity, uh, a lot that we learned with biosecurity that we are using now for PERS. What would be, in terms of uh, PED, your, your most up-to-date advice for controlling and eliminating the, the enteric coronavirus? So I think we've learned a lot since the, the beginning. You know, I think it, obviously we want to prevent it, number one. Um, so it goes kind of goes back to the biosecurity, just like with PERS. Um, but if we do have an, an introduction into a farm, I think we now know that um, a very, very low amount of virus is needed um, so that all animals can see a very low amount and still get immunity. Um, so that was, you know, a learning at the beginning. I think we thought we needed to give them just an overwhelming amount, um, which turned out to not be the case. You know, mm -hmm. so today, for example, if we were to have a PED break in a sow farm, um, we would opt to, to homogenize the herd with the lowest amount possible. And uh, just, we don't want, we don't necessarily need them all to be clinical. We know that even if they have a normal form stool, they are, can still be positive. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that would be something we do different now than what we done in the past, um, we would still, you know, reduce the viral load in farrowing. Uh, so we do that by moving a large amount of the pigs out of farrowing. If they're, if they're able to be weaned, we would. Um, and we know from past experience that the pigs that are, that are very young won't survive. Um, so we would not wait in terms of um, trying to, to keep those pigs. You know, we would euthanize those pigs as soon as possible to reduce the viral load. Um, and I think all of those things together um, now, you know, we're able to get through that on a lot shorter duration than what we would have in the past. Um, but again, it goes back to preventing it in the first place. Um, since we don't, we don't have a, a good enough vaccine to, again, provide sterilized immu immunity for that either. Um, so we we'd focus always on preventing it. Um, so that might be pre-shipment um, testing on gilts. Um, that'd be something new that we haven't, you know, wouldn't have done in the past, but we do now. Um, and then certainly paying very close attention to any and all clinical signs. You know, so if we even suspect a loose stool, you know, everything stops, you know, we get that tested. We make sure that that's not PD um, and before we would, you know, move those animals or um, risk that risk that load going into a farm. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Thanks for, for your comments on that. So moving now to the mycoplasma detection page, which covers the, the PCR detection for, for mycoplasma. Giovanni, what are the, the highlights for this month's report? You're muted. Okay. Mycoplasma detection during December was pretty active and the advisory group mentioned that during the last three months that was more mycoplasma activity in the field, leading for the identification of clinical disease and unexpected destabilization of negative herds as a consequence. Dr. Murray, there have been a lot of discussion right, around mycoplasma hibernomonia lately. Uh, as a production system veterinarian, do you believe that the US swine industry should be engaged to eliminate this agent from, from the farms? 
Yes, I think if, it, if it's possible to do so, I think we do need to do that. We know mycoplasma is very costly in terms of average daily gain. Um, so it's, it's very beneficial to eliminate that herd and more so, you know, not only for their impact that you have on your gilts, because there is a cost to having mycoplasma even in acclimation, right? Your gilts are going mm-hmm. to grow slower. You're going to have more challenges. You're going to have more fallout. But the biggest cost, of course, is the downstream mycoplasma leaving that farm, you know, so it's especially in concerns about antibiotic use, um, you know, having unstable mycoplasma, you have no other option but to treat those animals, right? Because your your gain is so severely affected um, and those animals become so clinical. So in the efforts to, you know, all the above, reduce costs, reduce antibiotic usage, um, I think we do need to eliminate if, if that is possible. Um, that can be very challenging if you're in a, in a area that you have other positive farms that are near you um, because there's a high chance of those are positive that you may get it again. So I think that needs to be looked at in the context of your geography and the pressure around those farms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in order to do that, you have to know where, where you have a problem, you have to monitor, you have to survey. And you've been, you've been working with, with that uh, for mycoplasma. What are the big learning points that you could share with us in terms of monitoring and serving mycoplasma? Yeah, so one thing that we did learn um, is that there are some of the mycoplasma vaccines that actually have a very high antigen load in them, and you can actually find that um, vaccine on processing fluids. Um, so in our in our looking in our testing, um, we were, we were able to find mycoplasma on processing fluids. Um, in unstable herds, but then even as herds stabilized, we were still finding it and finding more than we thought we should. Um, And then, uh, and these were herds that maybe use a mycoplasma vaccine at weaning, let's say, and you're processing in a completely different room down the hallway, nowhere near weaning, but yet we were still picking that up um, so that it doesn't take very much contamination, if you will, um, to maybe find that on processing fluids. So that's maybe not the best method um, if you're wanting to monitor the herd as you're maybe taking a herd negative. Um, processing fluids might not be it. But I think that's another learning, even if you're maybe doing a mycoplasma booster on gilts and maybe doing oral fluid testing. Um, and if you did that somewhere in the same day or somewhere in conjunction with that, um, there could be a possibility of picking up maybe some of the vaccine um, just due, due to you know contamination on your hands or that sort of thing. So I think that's just something good to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Sure. But oral fluid still is still good to. We know it's not as sensitive as as the nasal or tra- or tra- tracheal swabs, but it's practical. So in, in a, would you recommend or would you use oral fluids to to uh, test incoming gilts or even in the phoenix? So. I think it depends on your what your situation is. Um, if you have a if you're expecting a very very low prevalence and you want to catch it very early, uh, I don't think you want to use oral fluids. Um, you know, then you'd need to be doing you know deep tracheal sampling or something along those lines if you wanted to find it early. Um, if you're if that is not a concern um, and you're um, more just monitoring, maybe um, wanting to understand if acclimation is happening as it should in a let's say a positive herd, you know, so you're looking for clinical signs, you're looking for cough, and then maybe oral fluids could just be something that could confirm that, and then maybe also rule out that the cough isn't also coming from maybe PERS or flu. Um, so I think it would depend on the situation that you're you're in and you're monitoring. 
Thanks. Uh, so now moving to the disease diagnostic page, which covers detection, uh, disease diagnosed here at Iowa State VDL. Uh, Giovanni, what are the findings for, for this month? Well, for this month, surprisingly, everything was quiet for this period, and we don't have any further highlights. Yeah, but just a question for you, Dr. Murray, uh, in terms of, of going back to, to mycoplasma. How have you been handling this co-infection of mycoplasma with other, with other agents? And what would be, in your opinion, the optimal uh, disease management protocol in a high-density area? So I think you need to make sure that the, you have a good vaccination program in place. Um, so, you know, first off, you want to have a stable sow farm. So if you do, if you're mycoplasma positive, you want acclimation early and you want to try to make sure you have frequent guilt introductions if possible, just to increase and keep that mycoplasma shedding and keep that going. Um, so then that way you'll have a negative pig coming out or mostly negative. And then I think getting those vaccinated um, on the sow farm, I think is pretty critical. If we wait too long and our mycoplasma pressure is high downstream, then you may have exposure happening, you know, before you're able to get vaccine in. Um, so I think that's pretty critical. And then if there is some instability, I think then monitoring that and understanding when that occurs um, so that we can put in a therapy as a, as a treatment and or a prevention um, to, try to try to reduce clinical signs and to try to maintain gain on those pigs um, until hopefully they get to market would be ideal. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot for, for your, your opinion on that. And now we are going to, to the conclusion. We have a, a question that we, we usually do for all the, the special guests, which is how do you envision the future of, of disease diagnostic and, and surveillance in the swine industry? Uh, so that's, that's a tough one. Um, I, I think our, our diagnostics now are actually very, very good. Um, and I, you know, I think we do a lot of surveillance, um, but I, I guess I don't see that at reducing at all. I mean, I think if anything, you know, we might me even need to do more surveillance than what we do today. Um, and maybe diagnostics, maybe um, we start looking at um, other maybe additional pathogens, um, maybe like with the oral fluids and the processing fluids, you know, those were both tests that made things easier. Um, and uh -huh. so I think we need to keep working um, towards that, especially with pathogens like African swine fever. Um, we don't have that here, um, but if we uh -huh. did get that here today, you know, we would not be able to, to use oral fluids yet. Um, so I think we need to keep working on, um, you know, making sure that the tests that we have that we are comfortable using, um, like the processing fluids and the oral fluids, I think we want to keep expanding that and make, you know, continue to use that for other pathogens. Yeah, thanks a lot. And with that, that's what we what we had for, for today for this month's report. Dr. Murray, thanks again for, for taking our time and joining us today. It was a pleasure to, to have you here. And with that, thank you guys for, for listening. See you guys next month. Thank you.